Health is everything. La salud lo es todo. Health is everything. Health is everything. La santé est tout. Health is everything. Hi, I'm Dr. Charles Rezat. I'm a psychiatrist and research scientist, and you're listening to Health is Everything, a podcast from the Emory University Center for the Study of Human Health. And my guest for this podcast is my friend and colleague, Dr. Donald J. Noble. Dr. Noble is an instructor in the Center for the Study of Human Health at Emory University. He also co-teaches a course with me that focuses on the potential of ancient practices to enhance well-being in the modern world. No practice is more ancient or more readily available to all of us than breathing. In this podcast, Dr. Noble and I pick up where we left off at the end of the first installment of this series on breathing. In this podcast, we explore breath-holding and its role in advanced Tibetan Buddhist meditation practices before turning to a discussion of the psychedelic effects of very rapidly breathing, especially as exemplified by holotropic breathwork, a practice that reliably induces experiences akin to those occasioned by drugs such as LSD or psilocybin. Finally, we return to Dr. Noble's primary area of research, which are the health benefits and neurological effects of slow, deep breathing. We conclude by pondering the possibility that spiritual practices such as chanting, saying the rosary, and repeating mantras may function to entrain the brain in ways that promote neuroplasticity and thereby enhance brain health and emotional well-being. So let's hop right on in. Health is everything. So, you know, we've talked about rhythmic, deep, slow breathing that's a parasympathetic activator and activates, for most people, a sort of classic relaxation response. We've talked about fast breathing, which is a sympathetic or at least a withdrawal of the parasympathetic, you know, to fight a flight response that that may have therapeutic benefits. And then we have this really interesting thing, this breath holding, which, you know, all of us have breathed fast. We've all breathed slow. Most of us don't hold our breath. That's, um, but it's very interesting, isn't it? That may also have therapeutic benefit, not breathing. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, just from having tried out that exercise you describe, it to me, it feels like a very uh, physiological state of consciousness. You sense your pulse, you sense your heartbeat, you feel tingling. Uh, one other thing from a, a physiological perspective is that we actually have these stretch-sensitive receptors throughout our lungs and airways called soli-adapting pulmonary afferents. And the act of stretch when you breathe activates these receptors and they don't stop activating. These can potentially mediate some of the effects that you're talking about. That's the hypothesis that, that we have about what they do. They're intimately connected both with the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. And so it could be that if you're activating these, you're actually having this downstream effect on, for instance, arousal regions like the, the locus ceruleus, uh, amygdala, a region that's typically characterized as involved in, in fear, but the corollary to that could be relaxation. So that actually could explain some of the commonality about why something like a breath hold is similarly therapeutic to something like a deep breath. Both of them are activating these afferents, which don't normally activate until your breath is sufficiently deep. Um, but to your point, I think it's interesting that the breath hold, I don't think, is is characterized as sympathetic or parasympathetic. It's somewhere in the middle. We don't really fully understand it. And so I think that you've hit upon another area that 
I guess the practices are well ahead of the science. You know, the spiritual practices have already developed a more refined understanding than than anything that uh, that science knows about at this point. Yeah, it really is fascinating that through trial and error, people that really focused on this begin to recognize these subtle things. So like me in that flotation tank, I had a moment where I realized something. You know, it's very true. I mean, like these, you know, when we think about something like TUMO, I mean, the real practitioners would practice that, you know, seven to eight hours a day, seven days a week, some of them for 20, 30 years. Like, yeah, I mean, and I mean, one of the things that's so good about breathing is that it's it's always available to us. It's really powerful that way. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned that these expert TUMO practitioners, they do it for hours. And I wonder if you want to just briefly touch on maybe the closest Western equivalent of holotropic breathing. Yeah, I see. yeah you read my mind. I was just about to <laughs> ask you about it. Yeah. So talk to us about holotropic breathing. Yeah, I, this is one where you may have more of a background knowledge than I do. I've never actually attended a holotropic retreat before. But what's interesting to me about it is that it's really trying to initiate the spiritual experience that parallels a little bit the, you know, the psychedelic experience. And it seems to me that this is a interesting merging where simply engaging in a breath practice can, in some sense, mimic some of the same uh, breakthrough sensations or experiences that might be encountered during a psychedelic experience. Yeah. And the gist behind holotropic breathing is that it treats what we'd normally consider to be hyperventilation syndrome. And it says, well, is this always something that is against our best interests? And their hypothesis is that it's not. So that if you breathe fast and you kind of inhale and then exhale forcefully and you do this repeatedly um, and you can mix and match with things like a soundtrack of music that gets progressively more spiritual. And and then they do things like afterwards you go and you mindfully draw. And so there's this whole integrated approach. It's supposed to really induce profound spiritual experiences. But really the foundation of that is the breath work. And it's different than the slow and deep breath work. This is similar to the tumo breath work where you're you're really, you know, huffing and puffing in a, in a good sense, supposedly. And so the idea being that you really come into touch with your unconscious, subconscious, uh, transconscious, all these ideas that you're really going somewhere beyond to the surface level of rational thinking. Yeah. Oh, that's right. In the psychedelic world, it is the thing that's most often used to try to give people a psychedelic experience without a psychedelic. And I know a number of people who were very dismissive of holotropic breathing until they did it. And they were sh- they were shocked. They felt that it was at least as powerful as taking something like LSD, which has you know potent effects on your perception, your, your emotion. So I mean, the vast bulk of people really report that it produces powerful effects. It produces really altered mental states in people, and it really is a classic example of the power of breathing to do that. Yeah, I, I even wonder. I know that we've we've had this conversation in brief before, but you know, given the the fact that all of these different kind of patterns uh, formulae for for breathing are unexplored, I wonder, you know, if anything like that could be tailored to the psychedelic state, given the fact that set and setting is such an important component of the therapeutic experience. For instance, this question of if you have someone undergoing a emotional breakthrough experience during psychedelic exposure, does it help them to be in a you know a restful, relaxed state? Probably it, it might. Or <laughs> is someone really going to go out there and try holotropic breathing while they're while they're in a psychedelic? Maybe that's the the worst thing you could possibly do. But who knows? It's a good question, right? I mean, you know, I, I also know that there's never been a study of whether or not 
if you've had a psychedelic experience that was profound and sort of impacted how you think and feel about yourself in the world, if you were to then follow it up with sessions of holotropic breathwork, would it sort of bake in that sort of embodied emotional state? I don't think anybody's done that either. That is certainly, you know, one of the key challenges and areas of interest in psychedelic research right now is, are there other ways of extending the benefit? I don't think anybody, to my knowledge, published anything on whether, you know, breathing itself might be something that would either deepen the psychedelic experience while it's happening or, you know, extend it afterwards. I mean, that's really interesting. Yeah. So one reason that could be leveraged is that we know that breathing has a really pronounced effect on our so-called default mode network. And so this is the network when we're ruminating, daydreaming, it's active. But there is this idea that potentially by breathing, you know, are you able to put yourself in a state where you're more conducive to work with whatever the, you know, emotions and thoughts encountered during the psychedelic experience would be? But it's just one possibility there is because you're playing with these techniques that are involved in really fundamental activities like thinking, you know, or like performing a task, you know, maybe you could actually leverage that to to kind of, I guess, wind down or or build the insights that you've developed during that initial psychedelic encounter. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. You know, and when you talk about default mode network, it's sort of what's going on when nothing's going on, right? The brain must be doing something. And what it does is it thinks about itself, right? It thinks about, you know, you worry about the future, you think about the past. Psychedelics tend to take it offline a little bit. So talk about that with breathing. If one wanted to calm the default mode network, what it, certain types of breathing, certain pat, certain moment in the breathing cycle, what, what do we know about that? Yeah, so uh, very little. First of all, however, what I would say is that most of these states are characterized by this kind of ongoing uh, intrusive activation of these networks that seem to be involved in uh, in painful, you know, maladaptive states, presumably like ruminate over rumination. The idea behind breathing is that it tends to oscillate these regions. That means you're no longer stuck. So basically, if you can just slow and deepen your breathing, it can induce these oscillations in these networks such that they're not always active. And for whatever reason, it seems to be therapeutic for them to be activated some of the time where you're con consistently activating and deactivating these networks and therefore uh, solidifying the connections. And you're doing that consistently. And it seems like that keeps the brain fit. The other answer to that, I would say, is that these slow oscillations, what do we associate slow waves with? You know, the number one answer to that is like slow wave sleep. And so it's pretty well known that slow wave sleep consolidates memory. And so if you're mimicking that same state, not during sleep, but in a way that keeps you alert based on slightly different profiles of regions and connections activated, but still kind of activates those same brain oscillatory patterns that seem to be conducive to learning, you know, maybe that's helping you learn new habits. Um, but it seems that you're at least kind of getting unstuck. And so that if you can do that just by, you know, Focusing, first of all. So I think the mindfulness of your breath is an important part. Focusing on the belly, like the actual sensation, not the thought of the sensation. And then at the same time, you're actually breathing in a certain pattern. Those two things, I think, are really a strategy that can help in if you're depressed, for instance. It creates a space where there wasn't one before. Yeah, that's so interesting. Something that fascinates me personally is how spiritual traditions have hit upon these ways of using basic evolved physiologic processes. 
to alter mental states, right? You know, so there's a bunch of them. There's fasting. I mean, we could think about, you know, there's a lot of these things. But you were showing me a quote that is really interesting about the breathing and, and certain spiritual practices. So if you got it, why don't you, why don't you read it to us? We've talked a little bit so far about the kind of historical basis of tumor meditation and how it's been used um, as a therapeutic modality. This is also the case for slow and deep breathing, but in a disguised way that I think is really fascinating, which is that there's a study in 2001 by Bernardi uh, that showed that if you actually measured breathing and cardiac activity during chanting uh, a yogic mantra or the Ave Maria, they found that both of these modalities synchronize cardiorespiratory rhythms uh, at a very specific frequency, which is also the known therapeutic frequency of slow and deep breathing. So I'll, I'll read the quote to you, and then we can talk a little bit about that. This is from the Bernardi 2001 article. It says, the rosary was introduced to Europe by the Crusaders, who took it from the Arabs, who in turn took it from Tibetan monks and the yoga masters of India. This supports the hypothesis that the similar characteristics and effects of these mantras and of the rosary may not be simple coincidence. Mantras may have evolved as a simple device to slow respiration, improve concentration, and induce calm. Mantras are normally repeated in sequences of more than 100, similar to the rosary, which is 150 times. And the relatively long time required to perform this entire sequence is similar to that of modern training sessions for physical activity. This is about 20 to 30 minutes or so if you, if you do the math on that. Uh, this again suggests that one of the goals could be to induce physical in addition to psychological changes. To me, this is really the most, I think, profound in terms of supportive historical vantage point of these slow breathing techniques is that, you know, they didn't have watches. They didn't have cell phones. There's no really obvious metronomic way to keep sense of time, for instance. And so instead, there are these chants that just incidentally, they slow breathing to six breaths per minute. If you go back and check out our last podcast, I think we dive a bit into the physiology of why that seems to be optimal. Uh, however, I think the point that these techniques not only do they synchronize your breathing and your heartbeat to that frequency, but they also are repeated uncharacteristically in terms of these historical traditions, a large number of times that amounts to about 20 or 30 minutes, which seems to be the amount of time that it helps to do something useful if you intentionally breathe slowly and deeply. Yeah, that's so fascinating, isn't it? You know, those of us that did meditation studies or did meditation, the classic the thing which you're supposed to meditate 20 minutes a day, right? And that, you know, when mindfulness got transitioned into the West, that kind of time frame was somehow retained. Do we know why it, it takes a while to get that benefit? That's a very good question. Not really. My guess is that there actually is some sort of lingering uh, plastic effect there that occurs. There is some plasticity going on in these circuits that would be responsible for that. However, how that relates to the acute effect of 20 minutes, you know, if you're not doing this for eight weeks, that's a very good question. I would think that the fact that it takes some amount of time for kind of the noise in the background to filter is one reason, but that's still not really a, you know, a clear scientific answer. Yeah, it's really interesting. Time for us to wind up, but I think one of the one of the things strikes me, maybe because I'm a researcher, but man, it, it really speaks to how many interesting questions there are in this field that, that I mean, th this whole thing of breathing, it's amazing how powerful it could be and how, how many open questions there are that are probably of real therapeutic relevance. You know, it, it, uh, yeah, I, I could do a study. I would want to, uh, go and do some of this work with non-industrial populations that, you know, mimic in some sense, some of the actual kind of, uh, foundational physiology 
that maybe explains our evolution as human beings. And I see how they breathe. I would be yeah. interested in the question of, of how, how these individuals breathe when you're not spending your life with cell phones and, uh, and, and chronic stressors. I think that the fact that we don't know that is a really kind of broad uh, avenue for more research and, and more uh, hypotheses as well. Don, thank you so much. I appreciate you talking to us. And I find this breathing stuff really inspirational. So I uh, yeah, I think it's so important. Yeah. Oh, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. If I could think about this all day long, I would. Yeah. You and me both, man. Health is everything. Thank you for listening to Health is Everything. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe or share it with a friend or rate it on Apple Podcasts. You can visit us at exploringhealth.org and follow the Emory University Center for the Study of Human Health at CSHH or at Exploring Health, that's all one word, Exploring Health, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next time, I'm Dr. Charles Raison, wishing you the best of health until we meet again. Health is everything. La salud lo es todo. Health is everything. Health is everything. La santé est tout. Zdrowie est tout. Afia ni fila ki. Zilin kondisi ap ki. Health is everything.